0: A couple of weeks ago, just in time for Thanksgiving, we got some good news: lower gas prices. So our cost of driving to visit family and friends decreased.
1: So that oil, as it's going across the ocean, may very well be traded in what's called a daisy chain of contracts. It'll be traded thirty times while it's sailing along the sea for the different price at which which it will be sold. No one has said, "I promise to buy that cargo of oil." at this fixed price.
0: What do you think of gas prices? You think they'll go down?
1: Oh, I never answer a question like that. <laughs> because I, no, it, because my big, the big thing that I've studied for you know 45 years or whatever is, the very first year that Texas reached 100% of its capacity was the very first year that OPEC could have power.
0: Did you know that in 1960, the CEO of a major American oil company produced a portion of oil sales that his company shared with oil exporting countries? Despite his advisor's warning, he made this drastic unilateral decision without even consulting with the countries whose oil he was selling. Countries such as Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq. My guest in this episode describes this action as sheer Western arrogance which infuriated Saudi Arabia and others. And in response, they formed OPEC, which eventually controlled the price of oil. Hey there, newspeelers. Today is December 2, 2022. And this is Adele, the host of a History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world, who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peeling the History Behind News, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. A couple of months ago, my uncle told me a joke. He walked up to me, his face serious, and said, I don't like to brag when I shop at expensive places. I glanced at his clothes, (laughs) his shoes, his watch. Puzzled, I asked him, what expensive place did you shop at? He replied, I filled up the car at the gas station. Jokes aside, on Monday before Thanksgiving, the Wall Street Journal published some good news gas prices dropped just in time for that Thanksgiving road trip to the in-laws, or wherever you happen to be going. The U.S. average price for regular unleaded was reported at $3.64. As nice as that may sound, gas prices are still high. Way high. In fact, in October, gas prices reached their highest level since 2014. According to the New York Times, only 32% of Americans plan to drive for Thanksgiving. This is compared to 35% last year in 2021 and 65% in 2019, before COVID. By the way, prices at the pump in California are still above $5 and it hurts. According to the New York Times, the curious thing about the decreasing price of oil and gas in mid-November is that it happened when the supply of oil was actually decreasing, which, logically, should have increased the price of oil, And gas at the pump by extension. But it didn't work out that way because oil traders believed that demand for oil was decreasing even faster due to the slowing or even negative economic growth worldwide. By the way, before we get too excited here, the Wall Street Journal's Markets Report indicates that the price of oil is increasing again this week. So, how does it all work? To better understand the history of oil, how its price is determined, and the story of OPEC, I spoke with Professor Jacqueline Weaver. She's a professor of law at the University of Houston Law Center. Her teaching and research interests cover oil and gas law, energy law and policy, international petroleum, and environmental and natural resources law. She has lectured on topics in international petroleum transactions in Africa, Kazakhstan, Lisbon, China, and Bangkok. She's the co author of a Smith and Weaver, The Texas Law of Oil and Gas, and a national casebook titled, Energy, Economics, and the Environment, as well as another casebook titled, International Petroleum Transactions, and also the treatise, International Petroleum Exploration and Exploitation Agreement. She worked as an economist in the corporate planning department of the Exxon Company USA before joining the University of Houston Law Center. To learn more about Professor Weaver, you can visit her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption, Of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Weaver and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Weaver, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. So let's get into oil's history. With the basics, when was oil discovered in the U.S.?
1: It was discovered in 1859 with a uh, well drilled by Mr. Drake. Colonel Drake was his fancy name. He wasn't actually a colonel. Um, And he drilled it in western Pennsylvania. Um, It was all of 69 feet deep. Now, some people (laughs) were at that time digging wells. They were largely digging for salt and for salt brine. But they would find oil seeps in in these diggings they were doing. But this well became really the start of the modern oil industry because, number one, it was drilled by a company with partners as a commercial enterprise seeking oil. That is, they weren't seeking water, either fresh water or salt water. And secondly, it was in an area of the country um, and at a certain time when whale oil, our other best fuel, was dying out because we were killing off all the whales, um, that people really needed Um, a better source of reading lights in their homes. So there was a huge market potential out there. Also, these two gentlemen who drilled the wells as partners um, had behind them a a promoter and an an encourager to go after um, these oil products in these um, oil seeps or wherever they could find them. And he was a professor at Yale, a chemistry professor. And he had been doing a lot of work with um, heavy uh, tars, and distilling them, that is, cooking them enough that they could become a liquid. And um, someone else in Canada had been doing this, too, in the 1850s. And they were getting this light, clear fluid called distillate, or we call it today kerosene, that could be used for lighting. So they had behind them the chemistry from a Yale professor and this just uh, sheer grit of pursuing uh, this drilling operation that really no one in the United States had yet done. They were about to give up. This is so true of almost every great well that has ever been discovered.
0: That sounds like a startup. People drilling are are about to
1: give up. And in fact, a letter is coming to them from the investor saying, we don't have any more money. You've got to stop now. Um, Just give up. And between the time the letter was posted and the time it arrives, they discover these, these wells. This was not a great well, Drake's well. I mean, it it would produce a couple of barrels a day. It would kind of seep out of the ground, but it caused a huge rush into the area. And um, other much better wells were found in Western Pennsylvania, wells that basically uh, produced thousands of barrels of oil. And the world was waiting for this oil. I cannot tell you how important getting a source of light. We didn't have electricity yet. All we had were candles basically and fireplaces to read by. Um, the very wealthy had some animal fat oils and vegetable oils. but to get a liquid that could burn brightly um, in homes was just a uh, would be a wonderful, wonderful invention. So it takes off like crazy. Hundreds of people flood into the area. Um, They produce barrels and barrels and barrels of oil. We have barrels of oil today because the only thing to store the oil in at the time were whiskey barrels. So it kind of looks like a whiskey (laughs) barrel.
2: It was made of wood and it really
1: did look like a whiskey barrel. Um, And it starts this whole chain of inventions. Um, So now we need rail cars with tanks big tanks in them to pull more oil out because people are finding more and more oil and bigger and bigger wells with higher and higher pressure they're still in my mind i did live in texas for many years very small wells compared to what we're going to find in texas later on yeah. but um they start pulling this oil out and um, selling it all up and down the east coast And, uh, lots of other entrepreneurs are involved in this. So the railroads are involved. The barrel makers are involved. Um, distillers are involved. Refineries are very low cost at that time. All you did was kind of cook the oil and distill it and condense it and get this clean liquid out of it. Um, oil, the oil lamp industry blossoms with better, better chimneys on the oil lamps so they wouldn't smoke so much. And, um, Basically it takes off and actually goes international from virtually its first year. In, uh, oh, wow. Europe is waiting, waiting and waiting for this magic light to come to it. Um, no shipper wanted to take the oil because the kerosene, it's basically all kerosene, um, which we can still use today in a kerosene lamp. If you want to have a atmospheric romantic dinner um, <laughs> and They were afraid of explosions. And of course, all all oils explode pretty readily, the volatile oils. So um, again, an entrepreneurial sort, very tough guy, basically gets a whole slew of crew of a ship drunk, the young men drunk, and shanghaies them onto the ship, loads it with kerosene and ships it off to London because very few ship captains really wanted to take be the first person to go out on the high seas with a shipment of kerosene. And it makes a huge, um, you know, uh, celebration in London. Everybody and in, in, certainly in the upper classes want kerosene and it becomes an international market quite quickly. It's still a very small market, mind you, because mainly only the wealthy can buy it. But eventually, as the industry blooms and you get all these con- economies of scale, it becomes available to uh, the middle classes. and. Uh, in the United States, um and becomes the probably the largest industry known to mankind until we get the the high tech industries in. And
0: that that's a great story of entrepreneurship. Now, did when did oil byproducts of oil begin being used for heating homes? I assume that happened in the late eighteen hundreds as well, right?
1: No, that no, it did not. not. No. No, really, um, the only product that came out of the early, in, up until about the 1900s, um, that was sold from crude oil was kerosene. Sometimes you'd get some heavy tars, sometimes you'd get some heavy oils you could like put on lubricate, use for lubricating machinery, but basically it was a kerosene market that started the um, the industry, and it was all about illumination in homes.
0: Interesting, because, uh, you know- as And businesses. Wh- and and businesses, yes. Uh, as winter is approaching now, it's already uh, winter in parts of the Northeast right now. Um, you think of oil for heating homes, obviously, and you think of it for uh, for cars. Obviously, cars were not what were not relevant as an industry in the late 1800s. Um, so, when did oil and its byproducts become relevant for um, heating homes and heating industrial plants?
1: Well, in the beginning here, because I've been touring some of our early industrial sites, because now I've moved to the Northeast and out of Texas, where I lived for forty-five years, and it was all hydropower. You see, all these old sites that made the cannonballs that won the Revolutionary War—they're all on rivers, and they all used hydropower. So the fuel oil end of things doesn't really come in till um, around the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. We, but um, oh, wow. it comes in with. And that's after gasoline has come in to be used for cars, motor gasoline. Yeah, yeah. That starts developing in the 1910s. Henry Ford pops up around, I think it's 1908. Um, and that is a huge market that Americans just adore. Um, we basically had all the cars in the world. Almost no one else had any cars, but we, weren't, we were just car crazy. And we had this oil developing at the same time. We were finding more and more oil. We could then distill it rather than into kerosene, into motor gasoline. Um, And that became the major um, purchasing way you would sell oil at the time. Um, Most of our industry was still using coal.
0: Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, So it took some time for coal to be replaced by... Coal um, or hydropower. Yeah. Um, You said the world was waiting for this, by this you were talking about. Kerosene as a source of uh, fuel for lighting homes and later businesses. Did at some point the US become sort of the Saudi Arabia of the world in the late 1800s or 1900s? Did the world become dependent on the US for oil?
1: Well, we were the largest exporter. It was immediately an international market, but a very, very small market. So I wouldn't say anyone became dependent on it because you were still using either coal in England for the Industrial Revolution or wood in your fireplace for, or hydropower for your industry. Um, so if for some reason the ship exploded on, on the high seas and your shipment didn't come in, it wasn't like people were going to um, suffer greatly. They would just have to buy more candles until the next ship came in. So it's hard to say the world was dependent on it the way it is today where basically our entire economies are run
2: yeah
1: by oil
0: you know or, we gas. Have, or gas yeah we have conventional oil production and also there's fracking um, and it has its peaks and uh, lower sort of production levels do we have sufficient oil production capacity as a nation to be independent
1: Okay, for this you have to divide independent from the world price versus independent based on just pure quantities of oil that we can produce. We will never be independent of the price effects of what's happening in the international market for oil because it is an international market. Most of our oil today is sold on the spot market. So if a bad event happens, and a bad event can be anything from a huge hurricane um, or a huge flood, or or uh, Putin invading yeah. Ukraine could be, or coup in wherever. Um, if a bad thing happens, it will be instantly reflected in the price of oil because it will have an impact on oil demand and supply. Um, so we will never be independent. of That we could, if we didn't import a single drop of oil, our prices we in the United States would still be set on the international market because it is an international market. And our producers would, if they see a uh, $100 price on the international market, well, why shouldn't we get that? Why shouldn't the price be $100 for us? So unless Congress steps in and and puts in price controls, um, the price of oil in every country of the world is determined by international markets. Now, could we, if we wanted to, not import any oil whatsoever. Yes, we could if we wanted to. The United States. It has, we have a lot of oil. We have behind the regular oil and our regular oil and gas fields, we have probably the world's largest supply of something very confusingly called shale oil.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, uh, I'm sorry, oil shale. Mm -hmm. We have shale oil, which is unconventional oil. And we have shale gas that comes from doesn't really come from the oil and gas reservoir. It comes from the source rock that made the oil and gas reservoir. But in addition, we have vast quantities, vast quantities of something called oil shale. It's actually kind of a a kerogen. And it's out in Utah and Colorado. And every time there's a world war, like World War I and World War II, our defense department and our presidents would say, well, you know, maybe we should start developing our oil shale. Well, it's massively more expensive to develop oil shale. You have to dig it up and crush it and put it in a big retort. So, But we could do that. It isn't that we couldn't do it. If you wanted to send a man to the moon, you could just as easily say, we're going to develop our um, oil shale. But it's, it would be so much more expensive. And we have enough conventional and unconventional oil and gas, either fractured gas or the or the regular kind of oil and gas, that we don't really need to do that and we could still be um, independent but um, it would be more expensive because our refineries in the united states are not, not attuned to taking the types of crude oil that come from the united states the refineries oh. take the very specific kinds of crude oils to operate and the ones that were built largely in the um gulf coast we uh, were attuned to taking heavy, heavier oils, not fuel oil, but heavy crude oil. Um, a lot of it came from Venezuela. Venezuela has enormous reserves uh, in the Orinoco belt of heavy, heavy crude oil. It's almost like tar. If you think of the La Brea tar pit and all the animals. Yeah,
0: kind of yeah. I've visited app, actually. Kind of like yeah.
1: that. Um, but it's massive, absolutely massive. And we would take that heavy, um, oil from Venezuela and run it through the Gulf Coast refineries, along with our own U.S. oil. You blend them together. Well, now the shale oil is a much, much lighter crude oil. It's, um, it has different characteristics, chemical characteristics. So you can't just run that through the refineries that are built to handle different quali- a different quality of crude. Um, They could be built that way. So if we decided, well, we want to be independent of every country in the world. Um, We don't want to trade any more oil ever again, either in or out of the country. We could do that if we wanted to. It would be more expensive. Uh, We'd have to retool all of our refineries. It would take some time to do it, but you could do it. Um, So this whole idea of energy independence, I've never, ever liked those two words because you can have energy security, I think without being energy independent, if you have a diverse supply of energy, especially oil and gas, coming from pretty safe producers, I mean, Canada is not going to um, wage jihad on us. They're yeah,
0: have a coup or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so the problem is when there's the, the real problems in the oil industry have been the international markets have been when a, uh, I'll just call them a, a hostile actor, whether it's a Putin, Uh, or uh, certain OPEC countries who embargoed us because of our support for Israel in 1973, Uh, they're the ones who cause these very sudden shocks to the international oil market, and then the price zooms up, and eventually it comes back down. Uh, We can go through that later.
0: Uh, We will. At one point before we leave this segment, uh, Professor Weaver, you talked about Venezuela and our refinery uh, capabilities Uh, geared towards that oil at least originally how does the middle east quality of oil brand of oil sort of fit into that do our refineries are, are they set to uh refine those products um, too? those oil products they
1: they were we did refine a lot of mid-east oil which was um which was what our refineries in the gulf coast and especially on the um also in in new jersey were geared for and it's it's quality is sort of, I would say, medium, but it's not Venezuela, but it's not shale oil either. So, um, but it's a medium quality that, that our refineries were also built to handle. I see. Um,
0: we'll be back after a short break to talk about OPEC. Last year, I stumbled on a very interesting news development, that environmentalists were opposing solar power projects. Let me say that again it was the environmentalists who were opposing solar power projects. Not only some environmentalists don't want solar power projects in their own backyards, but they also point out that the energy for producing most solar panels comes from coal-burning plants in China. So, to dig deeper and better understand the history of green energy, its development and its laws, I spoke with Professor K.K. Duvivier who is the Chair in Natural Resources Law at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. By the way, she doesn't particularly care for the term green energy or other similar terms, and she explains why. The link to my conversation with her is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Weaver. Professor Weaver, let's get some basic oil education here you talked a little bit about it in the previous segment when oil is extracted what do we get out of it there's that thick tar okay what what comes out of that we talked about kerosene it's not
1: some crude oil is not a thick tar some crude there's all kinds of qualities of crude oil i have a little um display over there of different heavy the different heaviness of crude oil so it could be tar like could be wax like but it also could be very light. It can look like gasoline. It can just look like a light, clear fluid. So it all depends oh, wow. on the on the on the oil field. Um, but what you get out of it once it goes through the refinery, and that's what's important. It's got to go through the refinery. Is you get motor gasoline, you get jet fuel, you get fuel oil, light fuel oil for for home heating, um, and then you do get also at kind of the bottom of the. Of the tower, the distillate tower that's sending off all these lighter and lighter um, fluids and gases, you you still get asphalt, um, tars, very, very heavy crude oil uh, called residual fuel oil, not crude oil, residual fuel oil, which can be used as bunker fuel in ships, although increasingly it's no longer allowed because it's just too dirty. I mean, the ships just spew
0: dirty smoke. Okay.
1: Um, so you get a whole range of products. About fifty percent of what comes out of our refineries today is motor gasoline. I mean, that's how how dependent we are on cars, and um, and how dependent the refineries are on on uh, having the car market. But notice these days how many more EVs you're finding on the roads—electric vehicles. Oh, of course. So that yeah. market it will decline over time. Um, we'll still need jet fuel. That market is still growing, um, but we're we're working also on sustainable aviation fuels. Believe it or not, that's more the future, and you're we're still into the history. Um, so basically, the the hit the refining industry blossomed when the car industry blossomed, and it just happened at to be right about the same time.
0: Do most refineries reside in? Um developed countries, Western countries, or do developing nations uh, in the Middle East or uh, Africa or South America also have huge refining capacity?
1: Some do, some don't. So the U.S. is the largest refiner in the world, Mm -hmm. but China is almost about to undertake us. And it's a I don't know if you would call it a developing country or a rich country at this stage, but it set its (laughs) eye on, we may not have a lot of our own oil and gas in China, but when we import this stuff, we're going to have our own refining. It has massive refineries and petrochemical complexes, more modern and newer than ours. So China has it, India actually has a fairly good refinery um, sector. So uh, uh, Japan and Korea have big refining and petrochemical sectors. You can put the two together. The petrochemicals go into making plastics and things like that. and um, so they a lot of a lot of countries, even if they're not crude oil producers, may have refineries. Most poorer countries do not have refineries. So, but there are always some exceptions. I was doing some work in Uganda and many of you know where Uganda is. It's um, on Lake Victoria, uh, sort of in East Africa. It's absolutely beautiful country. One of my very favorite countries. Um, And they, a small oil company you probably never heard of called Tello Oil discovered uh, oil in Uganda about 10, 15 years ago. Well, what would they do with this oil? Because they don't—they are not actually on the coast of Africa. They would have to ship it either through uh, Kenya or um, some other nearby country. Uganda desperately wanted a refinery, that it would refine this oil and become the center of the oil industry for that part of East Africa. And it is now getting a refinery. It's going to be small. It's not you know, smallish. The market is not huge there. But it is chosen to use some of the oil that will be produced um, in a refinery.
0: So when that's an
1: exception, I think
0: that's an exception. Do they are they is their intention to export some of that or use it domestically?
1: They will definitely use some of it domestically. I don't think they're intending to export it overseas. But there's a whole little East East African market there Mm -hmm. that's basically been importing. Um, all their refined products so maybe it can sell to its neighbors sell to Kenya
0: the reason i asked about refineries is without knowing much more I, it, I always thought that it would make sense more sense for countries to actually refine their own petroleum products to essentially instead of selling commodities to sell the higher valued products uh, I've been surprised that many developing countries are actually having put more effort into doing that. I mean, there's a lot of political reasons, for example, take all the issues surrounding <clears throat> politics in Iran, right, uh, mm-hmm. or Iraq. But is that something that they've, they've made move towards to have their own refining capacity? Or is that something that just was not of interest? They were just making enough money out of raw oil and sending it out.
1: Well, in the beginning, in the early history of like even the Mideast, um, I would say it wasn't even on the table to have a refinery right there. All the markets were in the rich countries, in the West, basically, Europe and and the U.S. And the markets were basically controlled by what were called the Seven Sisters, the big Western Majors. And they didn't want to put a refinery in a country that was a little more unstable than putting it in their home countries, where they had a lot of control over the whole vertically integrated chain from getting the molecules out of the ground to refining it to selling it in their own service stations. Right. So all of us go to branded service stations here. So um, it it wasn't much thought of, I would say, in the 50s and the 60s. It is very much thought of today by some of the um, poorer developing countries that have oil, but it's not economic for them to do it necessarily. They have very long um, transportation routes that aren't yet developed. Um, It's an expensive proposition. You'd have to find foreign investors to build those refineries for you. What most more What more developing countries are doing, especially if they have natural gas, which is, sometimes, I think, today the more important commodity than oil. If they have natural gas, they want to take that natural gas and put it into electric power plants and provide electricity for their industry and for people in their urban centers. So Ghana, for instance, um, has uh, is one of the newer producers in Africa. And it has managed to get um, nat- natural gas going into power plants in Ghana to produce electricity. So um, it is something that countries want. It's just not always economic or the most efficient way to um, to develop the oil and gas. If they put in incentives to do that, um, it would... I mean, they can put in incentives. You can have government policies that say, and, and this is in many of the more modern international petroleum contracts, that there is what's called a domestic marketing obligation. So if Ghana had such a contract, it would say the, I'll just call it, Western oil company that is developing our field must supply to Ghana 20% of the natural gas produced in this field Um, And then they would have to get um, investors or the World Bank or someone else to help them figure out how to get that power plant built and get funding for it and then get um, get the benefits of the oil and gas distributed more broadly within their country. Because you're absolutely right. It is better to sell higher valued products. That's why China has such a huge uh, petrochemical and refining complex and India, too. So,
0: I recall reading both in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal many times about how some of these countries, uh, uh, I think Iraq and Iran uh, come to mind, actually import gasoline for their cars. <laughs> Even though they sell oil, they literally have to import gasoline because they don't have uh, refining capacity, which is just odd and an irony. Let's get into OPEC. What was the impetus for forming? OPEC, and who led that formation?
1: Well, this is one of my favorite stories, because um, it, I think, exemplifies decades of what I call the arrogance of the Western major oil companies, who did Allogance. rule the world. These Seven Sisters did rule the world. And of course, that Standard Oil New Jersey, okay, um, was sort of the biggest of the mean, bad, whatever you want to call them. They were actually quite efficient, very scientific, and in many ways, there's always good and bad about um some of the players in the industry but in 1960 standard oil new jersey uh was run by a young was run by a lot of committees but at the top of it was a fairly young and very brash and very arrogant fellow called jack rathbone and he was just he used um he was just focused totally on on profits and and making the most he could out of the oil and becoming more efficient. And in 1960, the Russians started exporting a huge amount of oil. And so the international oil market price was falling. But all the contracts that Exxon had in the Middle East, and this was true of of all the majors in the Middle East, based the payments that the oil company had to make, make to the rulers of the countries on what was called a posted price system. This isn't used today, but it was used then. And the posted price was a set price. I'll just say, let's say it's $3. The posted price is $3. So Saudi Arabia, for every barrel of oil that Exxon exports from Saudi Arabian fields, it's going to pay um, the government of Saudi Arabia, let's say 10% of the posted price of the $3. So 30 cents of every barrel will go to Saudi Arabia. Okay. But Exxon can't sell the oil for $30 because the Russians have started throwing huge amounts of oil on the market. So the actual market price of oil at which Standard Oil New Jersey today, Exxon, could sell the oil, let's say that's $2.70. Well, Jack Rathbone looks at this and says, well, this is not good for my bottom line. Um, I have to pay the Saudis as if I were selling the oil at $3, the posted price, even though the 10, I'm only getting $2.70 and I should only have to send them $0.27 cents for each barrel. And so he goes to the management committee of, of um, Standard Oil and says, I want to drop the posted price. We're just going to drop it. We're going to declare that the posted price is no longer $3. It's $2.70. And he is warned by his Mideast experts and by a remarkable woman, Wanda Yoblonski, who knew a lot about the Mideast, that he should not do that without consulting the Saudis. Well, he goes ahead and does it anyhow. Hmm. And literally, that set the world on fire. This, the Mideast was so angry. The Saudis were by now so upset that really their their entire economy, 90% of everything they that went into the government budget came from the sales of oil, that this Western capitalist could just slash the price of oil without even talking to them, okay? Wow. Without even consulting them. And so um, Venezuela was also getting kind of upset about the way they were being treated by our Western oil companies. So uh, the founding members of OPEC, there are five of them. They're all the biggies, the real biggies. And yes, the founding members are Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. And they form OPEC in 1960, just basically after Jack Rathbone has uh, really disrespected them tremendously by not even talking to them about the posted price. And then gradually, um, other countries join. Um, in the 1960s, because there's a whole feeling now of nationalism. And a lot of the countries had been former colonies, and they are trying very hard to decolonize. There's an hostility to the West. There's a Pan-Arabic movement going on. Um, and so we start getting other countries, some of them in, um, in the Mideast, but some not. The other ones that joined were eventually Qatar, Libya, United Arab Emirates, Algeria 1969. You can see this all happening in the 60s. Nigeria comes in in 1971. So there's our first African country. Um, Ecuador, tiny little South American country that goes in in 1973, but it comes back out. It doesn't have enough oil to bother with OPEC. Um, Angola comes in in 2007. Again, throughout. Oh, wow,
0: the, that late. Hmm.
1: Yeah, that late because... Um, We don't really go into Angola until the 2000s. Yeah,
2: yeah. but
1: basically, um, it didn't have very much power for its first decade. It um, issued declarations. It the Western companies paid a lot more attention to them. Was would now defer much more to them. They realized that they had made that Exxon had made a tremendous mistake. Um, that the, the source of the lowest cost oil and the hugest source in the world was the Mideast. And if they disrespected these leaders, they would expect to get what had happened in Mexico. Now, Mexico was a very real sort of, very real goblin waiting in the back because Mexico had been so disrespected by the Western majors that they had expropriated the Western industry, oil industry in the 1930s. Oh, so wow. knowing that background I
0: mean they took it over they nationalized yeah. it oh, mm-hmm. I see okay
1: yeah because they could not get the oil companies to agree to a wage increase for the workers and um wow yeah i mean the arrogance of the of the western oil companies is just one overriding theme of the the industry uh,
0: Dr Weaver um, uh, professor Weaver you said uh, the seven sisters uh, I, I wanted to make sure i know who they are are there seven different companies or countries
1: well they used to be seven different companies now they're a lot of them got amalgamated so um standard oil of new jersey is now exxon and it I consolidated see. with mobile so we have exxon Mobil. uh chevron was originally one of the seven sisters and it absorbed two of them gulf oil and texaco so we have those two really big um U.S. major oil companies. We also have BP, British Petroleum. It used to be called something else. Um, and then we have um, Shell Oil, Royal Dutch Shell. And then we have we could well those are probably all the amalgamated ones. Yeah. That all got mushed together over the years, but they were basically the Western oil companies from the U.K., the Netherlands, and the U.S. France, every once in a while, would come in and out with a nationalized, their own kind of national oil company. Um, but it wasn't as big a player as the others. And they literally carved up the world. I mean, if you want to talk about cartels, <laughs> the Western majors had a grand cartel of their own. They would make all kinds of agreements um, on how to act jointly in, uh, they basically carved up the Mideast to act jointly Around this red line that was drawn around supposedly Iraq, but it encompassed a lot more than Iraq, and they would all act jointly in that area. They kind of divided up the world in what's called the as is Aknakari agreement. They all went grouse hunting together in Scotland and agreed that they didn't want to compete too badly because you know that would kind of ruin the orderly market that they had developed. So they had that agreement. And often our governments, the state departments of the governments, would support all of this. I mean, England and uh, had no trouble with building a very strong uh, national oil company of their own, sort of, and supporting this sort of thing. Our State Department greatly supported us when we uh, wrestled our way into the Mideast East because the British and the and the Dutch and the French had all been there before us, so we had to somehow get our oil companies in there, which our State Department helped us do. So the they were all sort of um I wouldn't call well, you could I mean to many it would be a cartel. Yeah. But that went on for years and years and years. The sort of Western Seven Sisters cartel.
0: And the reaction was the formation of OPEC, which in and of itself is kind of a cartel, it's kind of a monopoly, right? Well
1: the reaction Of OPEC to this dominance of these Western majors um, over the night, especially the period of the 1960s, is to basically slowly buy them out, expropriate them slowly and take more control over their own industries. And the Western majors realized that that was going to happen. And they didn't want, again, the Mexico expropriation to happen. So they kind of, well, you say willingly, but they kind of had a not a gun, but to their heads, but they knew that they could no longer run the world and that they would have to uh, give in to some of the demands of the Mideast countries, especially the Mideast countries. And they did. So over the years, more and more control over the Mideast fields was passed to their own national oil companies, who are now very big players. Saudi Aramco is the largest oil company in the world compared to the national oil companies of Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia, um, Exxon is actually pretty small in terms of owning uh, a lot of reserves. So um, that all happens in the 1960s. But OPEC still does not have real market power until 1963. And in 1963, Texas's oil production peaks because texas this one little state in the united states had huge (laughs) oil fields also but um they were dying out over the years so an oil field depletes by about six percent a year a regular conventional oil field so if it's depleting and you discovered it in 1930 by about 1960 it's not going to be producing um increased supplies of oil it's just not so yeah Um, the very first year that Texas reached 100% of its capacity was the very first year that OPEC could have power. Because if it embargoed the United States now or embargoed any country in the world um, after 1963, I'm sorry, 1973, I'm sorry, I've got that. Yeah. 1973. Yeah. 1973. OPEC's formed in 1960. The embargo happens in 1973. So in 1973, Texas is at 100% capacity. OPEC gets, or some of the countries in OPEC, not all of them, get very mad at the United States for supporting Israel in the Arab-Israeli war. They embargo the United States. We cannot go to the Texas oil fields, turn a valve on, and get more oil out of the ground in two days. We can't because oil, the oil wells in Texas were already at capacity. So at this point, the embargo is going to hurt and hurt the Western countries. The price of oil will go up because there is going to be a shortage of oil. So it is not at all surprising that um, the OPEC, embargo was in 1973 um in fact a lot of people in the oil industry kind of knew something like this could come um but they didn't really want to
0: pull that trigger
1: yeah to to upset people too much about it yeah um i was working at exxon company at the time that's the u.s part of exxon as an economist and i was just in charge of sort of looking at the the price of oil um, and doing a corporate outlook kind of a thing that would go to the public. Um, but I was never allowed to discuss anything to do with international oil. That was all Exxon, New York, Exxon Corp, New York. So I would just kind of draw a straight line that the price of oil would stay at $3 because Texas was keeping it at about $3 a barrel. If, we, if the price went up and we needed more oil, we'd just go to The Texan oil wells and and turn them on, and we'd get more oil. So in 1973, that couldn't happen anymore. So you knew in the back of your mind that we were in a different era, but no one had embargoed us yet. So, but in 1973, they did. And that literally changes the world again. Um, That the price goes up enormously, it like quadrupled in the space of Less than a year, and people can't take easily price shocks that happen very quickly. You can take slow rises, but not these huge price shocks. And the even worse uh, shock happens when the Shah of Iran is deposed
0: 1979 um,
1: by a theocracy, basically by the Ayatollah Khomeini. So, and he is terribly hostile to the West. So he's not going to send us any oil. So in 1978, that happens, and the price of oil zooms up again. and it gets to such a high level, basically about 100 equivalent today to about 120 dollars a barrel, that the whole Western oil importing, consuming countries uh, really have problems. I mean, it's they have inflation from the price of oil, They have huge cost inter- increases, they have recessions because people can't buy oil, the industries are closing, et cetera, et cetera. It's a little bit like what you see happening in, the, in Europe today yeah and their their oil and gas is cut off, so we've been through this. but then, remember I was an economist at Exxon. Yeah. Um, market fundamentals ultimately ultimately will in the long term um, prove themselves out in the market and if you have very high prices and demand falls off, the other thing that's going to happen is very high prices are going to attract very many producers. And if there's anything you can say about a U.S. oil and gas producer, it is they are very entrepreneurial, our U.S. oil operators. Actually, most people in the oil industry are very entrepreneurial. So if that price goes up to $100 a barrel, we'll go searching for oil all over the world, not just in the United States. yeah. yeah. We'll search for it in the North Sea. We'll search for it in Africa. We'll search for it all over the place. And guess what? We'll find it.
0: Such as fracking. It made economic sense to go do fracking, right?
1: That doesn't even happen until the 2000s. That had nothing to do with the OPEC oil embargo. The OPEC oil embargo is the search for conventional oil and gas. We haven't yet kind of invented fracking, but we find massive new fields in many other places. And What's going What happens next is the third oil shock. The first one was the embargo. The second one was the Shah of Iran. The third oil shock is it's beginning about 1981. The price of oil drops, and it drops so much during the 1980s, especially um, after 1986, that OPEC is left in a very very weak state. And I just wanted to read you because I started looking back on. There's a whole book on on sort of what is OPEC all about? Is it really a cartel and whatever? And here's what people concluded was the effect of the OPEC oil embargo in the long run, okay? We're looking, this book was written in 1982. Um, The price increases, these huge shocks that OPEC um, gave us, quote, mobilized the entire technological and economic genius of the industrialized world for the task of reducing oil imports and reducing oil consumption. And that's what happened. But it took a while. It takes a while. If you find a field to get it up and producing, it takes maybe seven years. So if you start exploring in 1973, when the price of oil starts going up, you're likely to find stuff that wasn't economic to look for earlier. And when you find it'll it take seven or eight years to produce it, so this flood of oil will start coming out around 1981. And that brings OPEC Um, really, um, they had serious, serious economic debts in OPEC, uh, all kinds of budgetary problems because they just assumed they would have high priced oil almost forever. So in, in the end, the market worked. I mean, you get a high price for oil, the cure for the high price for oil is the high price for oil. People will buy more oil.
0: Let's take a break here and i want to talk about that issue high price of oil we'll talk about international oil transactions we'll be right back
2: we hope you are enjoying this podcast and if you are then why not treat us to a cup of coffee that's right for the price of a cup of coffee you too can become a monthly supporter of the history behind news podcast We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you!
0: Professor Weaver, in the last segment, we talked about the price of oil. And right now, you know, here in California, we have uh, gas prices above $6 easily. Um, what what I want to know is this. Isn't there enough oil products, uh, byproducts, gas, gasoline already in the system so that it's not impacted by Any of the various shocks that you identified uh, in the prior segment, for example, Putin or what have you, or uh, Middle East uh, embargoes. Why does the price of oil suddenly go up if oil has already been shipped and Western countries already have a huge supply? You would think it would take, I don't know, two, three months for it to go from $4 to $6 here in California. But Putin, you know, attacks Ukraine. The next day, oil is six dollars that just doesn't right. make sense does it
1: yes it does because okay. <laughs> oil is sold on the spot market but it, suppose you load a you load a ship with a tanker full of oil mm-hmm. and it's being traded on uh basically month spot market sales less than a month so that oil as it's going across the ocean may very well be traded in what's called a daisy chain of contracts It'll be traded thirty times while it's sailing along the sea for the different price at which which it will be sold. No one has said, "I promise to buy that cargo of oil at this fixed price." Okay, I you thought that's what future you to. contracts you can go to the financial do. Financial market and you can hedge, but the oil itself, the physical oil, um, when it's on that tanker, is basically traded many times through these financial markets, and they will react instantaneously to a hurricane, or Putin, or um, or COVID lockdowns in China, uh, or higher interest rates. The, there are just hundreds of traders out there, and most of the major oil companies have big trading departments. Also, that will trade the oil and make money on the financial side, but also be trading it physically. So. That is the international oil market. It's no longer long-term contracts. It used to be in the good old days with vertically integrated seven sisters. That doesn't happen anymore.
0: So when price of gas uh, at the pump just jumps up and let's say Exxon or, or Chevron say, look, we're paying higher prices too, they're not necessarily lying to us.
1: That's correct.
0: I w- I was I was hoping uh, to sort of, catch them in the act have have something with you to show that it's not the case but you're saying no that is the case. they really are paying higher because it's no longer long-term contracts interesting well they're
1: also selling it at a higher price. so I mean what remember some of them produce their own oil so yes they are getting some people might call it a windfall profit from their own oil. I mean the price at which they're um, the price they're paying to produce their own oil hasn't all of a sudden changed massively. So if they're at the same cost structure but now they're able to sell it for a lot more, um they are making good profits and just look at them. They are making very good profits. Yeah, yeah. But I am not one to blame the oil companies for this crisis. I will put the finger directly on Putin and his cutting off um uh supplies of oil. Well, we sanctioned uh the Russians for invading Ukraine and um basically he starts cutting off oil and gas and hoping we will bow to um the dictates of of him
0: his imperialistic ambitions right
1: right and hopefully that that money that the oil companies are making some of them are using to put into renewables some of them are using to reinvest in oil and gas some of them yes are buying back their own stocks but as long as you have a um a system that we have, which I would far prefer to central planning, believe me, um, in a communist society. It's a system in which the market will eventually cure itself. So that little quote I read to you about the after effect of OPEC, that the entire industrial Western uh, countries set every goal they could to reduce oil consumption and reduce um, oil imports. That same thing is happening today in Europe and in the United States, where we were already on a road, largely because global of global warming, of backing out fossil fuels through a market-oriented system. Renewables are actually um, just as inexpensive uh, today. Well, now they're much less expensive than high-priced oil and gas. but. Um, The price of wind and solar has come down so much that they could compete on the market, not because of subsidies or government programs, against oil and gas. The big problem, of course, is um, that they're intermittent. Sometimes the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow. But we will get enough inventors out there to give us battery storage, where you can store the electricity from the wind and the solar. We have enormous amounts of people now inventing and startups. Ways to get off of fossil fuels. And they were doing it before Putin invaded. They were doing it because there's a market there. Um, If we don't do it, we're all going to burn up. I mean, that's exaggerating burn up. But climate change and the problems it poses, um, even in the energy system itself, um, are enormous. So we were already on that road. And the International Energy Agency just came out with a report today saying, the world will never go back to the um, use fossil fuels the way they did before after Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It'll just um, backfire on them
2: that's because a, we
1: were already on our way to get off of fossil fuels.
0: That's a good point for a break. Um, I want to ask you a question about that. Stay with me and Professor Weaver as we get into the perspective.
2: The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast.
0: Professor Weaver, following up on the last segment, do you think at this moment, and maybe for a decade or so to come, however many years, we're sort of in this limbo state that we're not off of fossil fuels and we're not yet in uh, environmentally? friendly uh, sources of energy. And I I could see you're passionate about it. So it kind of like, I remember I talked to you about Germany where, or perhaps it's England whichever country makes more sense that they don't yet have all their uh, alternative uh, sources of energy up and going yet they're now pressed uh, sort of against uh, not having any uh, fossil fuel, right? So are we in that limbo state right now? And if so, how do you think this is going to be resolved? How many years do you think this is going to take?
1: Well, what's called the energy transition, where ultimately we'll go to greener fuels, low carbon fuels, will take decades. I am not one that's going to say, oh, we can just overnight turn to renewables. That is ridiculous, I think. And we will never actually totally be free of oil and gas. We will need it for petrochemicals, for plastics, um, for many types of um. While we can move our cars to electric vehicles, if those vehicles are fueled by a coal-fired power plant, they're no cleaner than the, some cars that burn, yeah. burn gasoline. So it's gonna take a while, but the price of renewables has decreased so much. And the energy security part of renewables is so much safer. The solar plants can be here, the wind can be here, you don't have to depend on a Russia or a Saudi Arabia or uh, whoever else is decided. Iran they
0: or run Venezuela, out. yeah.
1: Yeah. And they're, they're renewable. They don't deplete. I mean, your, your oil field runs out. It eventually will run out of oil. Um, but a solar plant doesn't.
0: But it seems like for the foreseeable future, we still have to use fossil fuel sources yes. because we're not there yet.
1: Absolutely. Very true. That. Uh, and there are permitting issues, and I can agree with you. There are permitting issues with fossil fuels. There are also permitting issues with renewables. Some people have banned, don't said no to wind farms because they uh, ruin the view. But we are going to have to make some very hard choices, and and I think fix the permitting system for any of our energy infrastructure. It is just takes too long to get the transmission lines we need to get the low powered wind and solar, for instance, from West Texas to all the people living in East Texas uh, to get those electric transmission lines. So it is gonna take a while and you need to do pretty coordinated planning um, to get that system in place. But there is no going backwards, I think, in this move away from fossil fuels. I think that will stay and Russia has simply Made it speedier on the part of the European Union.
0: My last question is this, uh, and I, I hope I'm not being too cute here. What do you think of gas prices? You think they'll go down?
1: Oh, I never answer a question like that <laughs> because I no it, because my big the big thing that I've studied for you know 45 years or whatever is uh, my favorite quote from a from a CEO of an oil company is a quote from. Um, the CEO of BP, Lord Brown at the time, um, British Petroleum. And they, every year, put out a wonderful energy outlook, projecting this, that, and the other. And then he says at the after, he says, you know, all these market fundamentals, we've got plenty of supply in the ground, demand will be this much, population is growing in this much. And then he said, you know, events always trump, tr- trump the fundamentals. I think he actually said events always override the fundamentals rather than put the word jump <laughs> <dump> in there. <laughs> People might not hear it properly. Yeah. So events always override the fundamentals. And that's what we were living through right now. There's just as much oil and gas in the ground before Putin invaded as there is now. But he's be, geopolitically, these events um, and the sh- fall of the Shah of Iran and the oil, oil embargo, these geopolitical events and increasingly physical extreme weather events um, give shocks to the energy system um, in a way that has nothing to do with market fundamentals. So for all I know tomorrow, I'll tell you, oh, the price of gasoline is going to go up again. Oh, I hope not. And I'm I'm, I'm not saying it will. I'm just saying, suppose I said that. And tomorrow, China locks down all of its cities, not just a couple of million people because of COVID. It just locks down the entire country again, and you can't fly in or out of it. That would so much cause a fall in demand, the price of oil would drop immediately. So it's things like that that are that control this spot market for oil. Um. So if you ask me if gasoline prices is going to go up or down, I say, oh, golly, I don't know. What <laughs> if Putin drops dead tomorrow? You know, I don't know.
0: We can hope. <laughs> no. <laughs> 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 Professor Weaver, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much, Professor Weaver.
1: You're welcome. I love history, especially world history.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot of fun. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may can prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, History Podcast for our news.